Kathleen Scama, president of Western Energy Alliance. Appreciate you taking some time out of your schedule during this uh, busy holiday season and COVID season and end of the year season. And it just seems like everybody's kind of busy, but yet waiting around. So interesting times we're in right now. How are things in the Rocky Mountain region where you're headquartered out of? Good, good. Can't complain. I did see where you guys were uh, either hiring or something along those lines on social media. So I thought we'd maybe start off with that. What's going on at your organization as we wrap up the year? Oh, we're looking for a business development person. So, um, yeah. Okay. Um, anybody, uh, anything you want to elaborate on that? Give you a quick 30-second plug on that. Oh, we are looking for someone who um, has deep ties within the oil and natural gas industry and uh, knows how to uh, uh, close the deal and bring on members. And let's talk about what your organization does before we get into kind of a year in review and look ahead a little bit. Talk to the people out there listening, what you guys do, how long you've been around, and uh, what kind of some of the good fights have been in the last several years, if you wouldn't mind. Sure. Well, we were founded in 1974, so we have been representing companies engaged in all aspects of exploration and production of oil and natural gas in the Rocky Mountain West in North Dakota. Um, And so we have, um, we fight on behalf of the industry. We promote policies that will um, enable uh, us to continue to provide reliable and affordable energy for the American people. Um, well, you know, also we are very engaged in uh, federal lands issues. Um, we take a regional perspective uh, back to Washington, D.C. So we focus on those federal issues like uh, public lands access, like air quality, um, other things that affect the entire region. So uh, we basically work on behalf of the upstream industry. We have uh, members um, that support us and With that, we do work such as um, we help to overturn the federal regulation of fracking. Um, That was in 2015. We recently stopped uh, a methane rule out of the Bureau of Land Management, which does not have jurisdiction over air quality. That resides with the states and with EPA. So we believe, you know, in the rule of law. And uh, those are pretty big court cases for us. Right now, we are defending basically every federal lease that has been issued since 2015, um, which has been uh, under attack from environmental groups that don't want to see any oil and natural gas development. So they have sued challenging the Bureau of Land Management's um, leasing of any public lands, basically. And so in the West where we're predominated by federal lands, and even in North Dakota, about a third of wells are federal because they hit some federal or tribal um, minerals at some point. And so, um, you know, these efforts by uh, environmental groups to just stop development on federal lands um, means that we really wouldn't have a viable oil and natural gas industry in the West. And they know that, and that's exactly why they're doing that. So we are in court defending those federal leases. We anticipate that to go into the future. And we also think that work will put us in good position to challenge uh, the president-elect's plans to ban leasing and permitting on federal lands. 
So he made that clear in the second debate, for example, um, that he does not want any development on federal lands. And so we expect there to be quite an issue in the coming year. Well, coming four years, actually. I've got two questions for you um, based on just that response you had. Uh, the first one I had was, you know, I'll, I'll just ask you before I get into the, the creating a bridge and kind of inclusion and just your outreach that you do. You mentioned uh, North Dakota and Rocky Mountain region. wanted to ask you about your work with some of the other shale plays and just some of the other leaders in just a second. But um, the federal land and the, the fracking ban and just all this conversation over the last few years, and it's kind of really specifically kind of honed in a little bit on this federal land leasing, almost like it's step one for a lot of the climate activists. And it's just my just journalism red flag kind of thing going up a little bit. And at the same time, it might be just some, some over, you know, anxiety on the other part. On the other hand, it might be, hey, dummy, yeah, that's the problem too. So, I mean, I just wanted to get your, respo- uh, your response, your reaction, your thoughts on, on how the focus on trying to ban federally do you think that is a step one into eventually going into private and maybe some other uh, areas of reaching into that sector, or is that too advanced for right now? No, absolutely, absolutely. So clearly um, the Democrats just want to get rid of oil and natural gas completely. They have this notion that by 2035 or pick some magical round year, um, we can be all net zero for carbon emissions, and we don't have to use any energy except wind and solar. Now, that is not based in reality. Um, We cannot survive uh, our modern economy with uh, intermittent sources of energy, and the public does not have the appetite for the country to be carpeted with solar panels and wind turbines. It's just not realistic. Plus, I mean, that only covers electricity. That doesn't do anything for transportation. We simply don't have the capacity. We don't have an alternative to oil, natural gas, and coal that is sustainable and affordable into the future. Now, we might if some new technology comes through, but, you know, to 2050 any and beyond, any real energy analysis shows that oil and natural gas continues to grow as global demand grows. So it is definitely a wish of the left that oil and natural gas and coal go away, but it's not realistic. It was very simple during the campaign. Um, Democratic candidates tried to say they were going to ban fracking, and that was so outside the mainstream and so obvious that that wouldn't work that they had to backtrack some of that. And when president-elect biden realized that he had to moderate that stance um he and it was very clear during the second debate he came right out and said no no we can't ban fracking and 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 the simple calculus is he wanted to win pennsylvania but he doesn't think he's going to pay a political price by saying um he's going to ban it on federal lands because one um the oil and gas states in the West that have the predominance of federal production, like North Dakota, like Wyoming, um, they simply are 
President-elect Biden doesn't pay a price there because these are Trump states that went by, you know, I don't know, something like 20 points for President Trump. So he's never going to win those states. So he feels that politically he doesn't have to pay a price for banning federal development. But politically, he has a lot to gain because he's got a left wing that doesn't think he's going far enough and thinks he should ban fracking nationwide. So if he can say, well, I'm going to ban it on federal lands, he um, gives, uh, you know, gives a bone to the left and he doesn't pay a political price. So he's been very clear that he wants to ban federal leasing and development. Um, we expect to see that. And, you know, as far as you mentioned about outreach, I mean, of course, we have to work with whatever administration is in place, and we will do that. But when it's so clear that he wants to ban leasing and fracking on federal lands, and frankly, the oil and natural gas industry in the West cannot avoid federal minerals. Unfortunately, we would love to. We would love to stay completely off federal lands because it is much more expensive. The red tape is 10 times higher than adjacent non-federal lands. But with the interlocking pattern of federal, non-federal, state, tribal, Indian allottees, you know, you have all these different land ownerships in the West, and they're often intertwined. I mean, they're literally parcels of land right next to each other. You see that in North Dakota. You see it all across the West. So if you want to develop in the West, even if you try to avoid federal lands, you almost cannot because to put together a leasehold, you can't just skip these little intermittent parcels of federal land and you're lateral. You know, when we're drilling down a mile and then out two miles um, with that lateral, your lateral is going to touch some type of federal lands or minerals in most cases in the West. Again, even in North Dakota, where the development is primarily on private lands, um, often those laterals will touch a little pocket of federal minerals, and then you get sucked into the full federal process. If federal leasing and fracking are banned, that means several wells in North Dakota as well cannot be developed, and that means that those non-federal minerals owned by ranchers and other landowners, um, they cannot develop their oil and natural gas resources. So there are impacts well beyond just, you know, staying off Bureau of Land Management or Forest Service lands. There are impacts to other, to developing other non-federal minerals. And so that's why we are gearing up to um, oppose any type of ban, whether it's a presidential order or if it's a death by a thousand cuts through analyzing federal development for years and years and holding up leasing, we will be in court to ensure that uh, the Western oil and natural gas industry remains viable. It's interesting. I wanted to mention, I wrote a note down about Biden's, you know, I wrote down crumbling, you wrote down backtracking, I'm sure a lot of people will call it flip-flopping. But the fact of the matter is, he did come out and say, I'm going to ban fracking. And that was coming off of Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. That started that drum beating several years ago. And then when push came to shove, and it might, Pennsylvania probably had some influence and everything else, but I think at the end of the day, 
either he realized or somebody sat down with him and showed him what the reality is. And he really became, in my mind, a symbol that was so symbolic of the current climate activist, of the current person where they're all attitude and no information. And once they get the information, they do exactly what Biden did. He, he, he did. He went from, he went from a, 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 a backtrack to a crumble to a flip-flop. And that is in a, what, one, two-week period, something like that. So uh, that, that's kind of, I wanted to ask you just, do, do you think that is something that either industry should look at, or do you think there is any symbolism there with what and how Joe Biden handled the fossil fuel uh, argument throughout the debate and the campaign, I guess? Uh, you know, it's just reality. I mean... The oil and natural gas industry is responsible for something like 40% of the economic recovery since the Deep Depression of 2008-2009. Um, the shale revolution has been truly revolutionary in terms of global oil supplies. We have gone from a nation that imported 60% of our oil to one where we are a net exporter. So we have a situation where um, we have transformed the world. Our shale producers in North Dakota and New, New Mexico and Texas have changed the world when it comes to energy. And the United States has benefited it from that um, immensely. Um, so not to mention the fact that there's just not a, an alternative for the energy that Americans need to use to maintain happy, healthy, and safe lifestyles. Um, there's just not an alternative for transportation. There's just not an alternative for electricity uh, that is, you know, totally that uh, fulfills all of our electrical needs or all of our energy needs. So reality had to set in. There's no way a president can come in here and shut down the energy use that, se that provides 70% of all energy Americans use. So there was the reality, and then there was the political calculation, which is he needed to win Pennsylvania. Um, he needs to win states that, um, that had to have oil and natural gas development in them, like New Mexico, like Pennsylvania. And so it was, I think it's really reality. Would they like to get rid of us? Absolutely. Can they? Not without... Um, putting everybody back in a cave with, you know, no access to energy. So I think it was more reality and the fact that, um, you know, he was getting too pulled to the left, which is inevitable during mm -hmm. a primary. Um, and then he, you know, he's got to govern. So there is room to work with this administration. It is certainly more moderate than a Warren or a Bernie Sanders administration. But, um, you know, he's going to be constantly um, nipped at from the left wing. He's never going to do enough for the left. The left thinks we should just shut down oil and gas today and that we should just totally rearrange our lives to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions. Um, that's not a politically viable um, policy for Democrats. You know, it's interesting because you look at the world we live in today, it's almost you know, we almost become more disconnected as we become connected. And, you know, with the COVID going on and the social distancing and 
Um, the, it, it, I did want to mention, you know, I, we've been going back several years with our interviews, uh, five, six probably, and I'm, I'm very appreciative of that because it's become very uh, difficult over the last year to get access to a lot of different people, and a lot of changes has, have happened. And, you know, we've grown c- considerably because of it to where we're now a national platform through social media. We still have our radio up in, up in the Dakotas and eastern Wyoming and eastern Montana, but we're appreciative to the access you've given us because you're in the thick of it all the time. And, you know, we don't have the, the resources to, you know, send people to Washington and, and, and the state capitals and, and everything like that. So um, just wanted to say that, first of all, you know, very appreciative to the access you've given us and the communication through the years, because you and I have never met face to face. And, you know, this industry sometimes can become a little bit of a country club. And so I do appreciate that. And I did want to ask you a little bit about the, the bridge building and the inclusion. And it almost seems like there's a little bit of a push of that now in the industry. And you've been doing that as long as I've known. So uh, is that what's happening right now a little bit to where states or shale plays working together a little bit more, that sort of thing? I don't know if it's an idea exchange or just they got time on their hands. Uh, just talk to me a little bit about, you know, what you've been doing with other shale plays, other leaders, and, uh, kind of if there's, if there is that kind of a, more of a cohesive movement going on. Well, we as an industry have many different trade associations because of all the complexity in the industry. Every state has a trade association like the North Dakota Petroleum Council, and we certainly work with our partners at the states and our national partners like API and the Independent Petroleum Association of America. So we all are working together and sharing ideas and um, defending the industry because it comes from lots of levels, whether it's at the state level or the federal level. Um, there are There's a lot of complexity in the policy environment, whether it's Congress trying to pass laws that would shut down oil and natural gas development or a new administration coming in saying no federal leasing and fracking or whatever the issue is. We coordinate as an industry, and yes, there are different issues in each shale play, um, but there's, a ton, you know, there's lots of commonality. So there's always that sharing of ideas. And you know, at, at, at the basis, um, it's the same types of processes. It's the same hydraulic fracturing and horizontal drilling and different shale plays. Each one is different. Each one has a different uh, geological code that needs to be cracked. Um, but there, there are many different commonalities as well. And the issues faced are very similar. Right now, one of the main issues is climate change. Climate change is the perfect issue to try to shut down um, oil and natural gas development by saying, you know, um, greenhouse gas emissions are ruining the planet and we're all going to go away in 100 years. And so there's a lot of climate alarmism trying to make the um, – the issue seem worse than it is. But on the good side, as we've increased use of natural gas electricity generation, we have displaced more greenhouse gas emissions than wind and solar combined. So we have done more as an industry to reduce meaningful emissions of greenhouse gases in the United States than, you know, the preferred, the politically preferred wind and renewable energy. 
So those types of messages need to get out. Um, you know, there's willful uh, ignoring of that type of information in the media. The media just doesn't want to put out good news about the oil and natural gas industry. Um, but, you know, as you've pointed out, with social media, um, people are working around the media and um, finding information for themselves from multiple different sources. And I think that's healthy in a democracy, and it's healthy when we have such a broken mainstream media right now. I think the uh, connectivity, I think the communication is vital right now more than ever. I think this is the year where communication is needed. Uh, there, There is a lot of different segments going a lot of different ways. I saw Wyoming uh, just last week or something like that introduce some new uh, climate activism into the courts or into the public domain. So, you know, it's the federal ban lease thing that um, a lot of the other states have tried to do, and I think Colorado might have did that. I'm not familiar with exactly the the step-by-step template that Colorado had, but we've been seeing this for a while, just the fact that it's popping up in the, the start of it in other states, and so we've been keeping an eye on it. Um, when I, I did want to ask you about Wyoming. You know, they that was in the news last week about how there's some new climate activism push there, and last year, it did hit rig count zero. That was a little concerning um, to me because I never heard anything ahead of it. And, um, you know, a lot of times when some things happen here in North Dakota, Lynn Helms will step up and say, listen, guys, we're getting down to 10 rigs or 15 rigs or the, the climate is just, he starts putting warning signs out, you know, that type of thing. And um, I'm not, you know, I don't live in Wyoming and I'm not part of that day to day. So when it hit zero, it was like, it was a report as opposed to a conversation. So, um, wanted to ask you about rig count zero in Wyoming. If you knew much about that, if, if, if you have a comments on that, you, you don't fought, that's not your, that's not your forte. So I want to be very clear about that. <laughs> Just wanted to find out. Yeah. About- and when prices went negative in May, um, activity went down to practically zero in most oil and gas states. Did actually have zero rigs running for some time. I don't know. What was your low in North Dakota? It was not very many rigs either. No. So, uh, you know, when a price goes negative, not only could we not find places to put existing production, but certainly no one was willing to do much new production or new development um, because there simply wasn't a market for it. Thing. So I don't I don't take that as anything other than a, uh, an effect of that price going negative in uh, the April May timeframe. So that I mean, of course, that the price crash was very concerning, but I don't think it portends any larger issue than a reaction to market realities. Um, so as far as climate activism, will it hit? Any state, yes, but is Wyoming, you know, going to fall for that type of uh, bald climate activism to shut down one of its major industries? I don't think so. So that is not that much of a concern for me. However, the problem is overall, nationwide, this um, misinformation about energy that persists, it's, it's willful by the media, it's willful by the left. Um, it's trying to convince people that uh, oil and natural gas is bad and has to be stopped. 
and that renewables could fill the gap. And that's just simply not reality. So we are constantly having to deal with uh, people who are advancing policies, groups that are advancing this keep it in the ground policy, which would be absolutely deathly for Americans. I mean, if we didn't have oil and natural gas, we wouldn't have a response to COVID. We wouldn't have the protective equipment. We wouldn't have uh, ventilators and medicines and a new vaccine coming out. All of those things rely on oil and natural gas, not to mention that you don't want to run your ICU only when the wind is blowing and the sun is shining. So uh, the bottom line is oil and natural gas enable life-sustaining, all types of life-sustaining activities for Americans and all around the globe. And without oil and natural gas, simply put, people would die. We have we, The energy that we produce not only keeps that ICU running, but it is in almost every product we use every day, including all of our technology, all of the internet, all of the medicines we use, and it goes on and on. So this, these talking points from the left that oil and natural gas are bad and they need to be um, gotten rid of is just not based in reality. Um, but the problem is there's not a lot coming through the media that pushes back against that. Um, when a climate activist says something like that, it is just taken at face value as if by 2035 we could get rid of all oil and natural gas. Um, that's, it's just not reality. So at some point, politicians like the president-elect have to face that reality um, because even he knows that the country would cease to operate, uh, would cease to function without reliable energy. So, you know, it's a constant uh, fight against that misinformation. Uh, we are totally outgunned when it comes to that. But um, at some point, you know, we are providing a product that enables people's healthy, safe lifestyle. And um, sometimes that speaks louder than words. Kathleen Skama with Western Energy Alliance. And by the way, in addition to the Rocky Mountain region, uh, also just want to clarify, it looks like you, you even bleed down into New Mexico and Arizona and Nevada, up into uh, the Northwest as well. Into, sure, we uh, cover all of the West. We cover all of the West except for California. Except for California. Okay, that's, yeah, that's a that different is, story that for a different day. <laughs> that is purposeful, yes. I know it's, it has to be. I mean, so that's what I mean. Different story, different day. Because we've gotten into overtime. I appreciate the uh, time. I'm taking a look at the clock. And uh, just one last uh, plug for your organization, how people can get the information. We've talked a lot about misinformation. So let's talk about how people can get information. And you've got a newsroom and you've got a newsletter and all kinds of different or, or press releases you send out. Uh, how can people get involved with your organization? Sure. So we are Western Energy Alliance, and our website is westernenergyalliance.org. Um, we are a membership-based organization, so um, we have company memberships, and uh, we welcome um, any type of company that does anything with the upstream industry in North Dakota and across the West. 